Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of We're Gonna Need a Bigger Show, live from the Chattanooga Film Festival. Uh, I am very excited today. Uh, we met this next filmmaker two years ago, and we've been wanting to get him on the show ever since. And he is here with his film, The Crest. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mark Covino. Hey, thanks for having me. Mark, thank you so much, yeah. man. This is this is really great. Great to be here. It's uh, This is, so is this your third year here? This is uh, second? my second year here. Okay. Um, they, technically speaking, third year connected to the fest because they showed a band called Death at the first oh, Chattanooga okay. yeah, Film yeah. Fest. But I, I, for some reason, I wasn't invited out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. But uh, um, shortly after that, I connected with Chris. Yeah. Um, there's two Chris's, Chris Dorsch, Dorch. Uh, one and two. Okay. Uh, two is the youngest one, I've learned. Uh, I connected with him, and we both hit it off. We both liked horror films and genre, you know, right the genre. And so uh, we just talked, and he's like, hey, would you come for the next festival? I can actually fly you down to, you know, if you can teach a documentary class. And so That's I came awesome. down the year after right. to teach documentary class. And then I couldn't make it the year after. They wanted me to they want me to come every year to teach a documentary <laughs> class. They really enjoyed my company. So That's awesome. <laughs> well, you we usually start off with kind of like early life and early influences. So they talk a little bit about, you know, what was I know there was a lot of art in your house growing up. Yeah. What was that like and what was did film have a big place, you know, in your in your house? Well, I my parents divorced as soon as I was born. Okay. Um which is weird. Um, I think my mom just wanted to have a kid, and <laughs> sure. my dad wanted to have a wife and kid. Right? <laughs> they didn't see eye to eye. Uh, my dad was a, a classically tra uh, trained portrait artist, um, a very amazing artist, uh, like Renaissance era type portraits, and um, so he was kind of established with that. My mom was a nurse um, who just loved movies, and I, I grew up with my mom. Like when she divorced him, she took me to New York, where she was from, and um, and raised me in Long Island. And every Friday, we'd go see the new movie that came out, and we had cable. We were one of the first families to have cable on my street. And I'd watch HBO all the time, and she would tape movies off of the TV, and we'd watch those over and over again. I, I remember uh, wearing out, uh, my mom bought Ghostbusters when it came out on VHS, and I, I watched it 100 times in a week, and it broke, and she beat the shit out of me. <laughs> but, um, I mean, there was just, like, a lot of love for cinema in that house sure. between my mom and I. My dad never saw that, really. I mean, it was weird, because he's an artist, right. but he thought he should be a portrait artist. He shouldn't be messing around in movies. <laughs> did, did you, at, even at a young age, did you learn much from your dad as far as painting was concerned? I learned, uh, not necessarily painting, but lighting. Okay. I learned sure. a lot about lighting just from watching his paintings and, and right. looking at his paintings and, and seeing how the light hits the body and absolutely. And I would sit in in some of his art classes and he would teach that and, and it's very much like filmmaking and, and being a cinematographer yeah. and, and so I learned a lot about that and composition the golden mean the golden ratio he was all about that yeah. you know and I, I don't even know the numbers he'd always read these numbers off to me which are basically like <laughs> pie numbers right. but you know you're supposed to set the subject at this corner of the screen <laughs> or painting right but it was just like filmmaking and it taught me a lot about it and so sure. at a very early age i knew how to frame a camera yeah that's fantastic yeah. so was there like an emphasis on genre film or was there was it just, uh, just all sorts of film growing up when i was at my youngest it was like the big you know ghostbusters yeah. and star wars sure. and, and all that um but as i got older i guess around middle school time uh, my mom worked the night shift at the hospital, and she would always, uh, you know, leave me alone at night. And I would always go into the living room and turn on the television. And one of my favorite shows to watch was USA Up All Night uh, with Gilbert Gottfried yep. and Rounder Shear. Um, and they showed tons of trauma movies. They they showed uh, tons of Full Moon entertainment sure. movies. Basically anything schlock, you know, Grindhouse. Um, and it'd have these little intros with Gilbert and Rhonda, yeah. who's this hot blonde with big titties. <laughs> yeah. Um, she'd go, USA, up all night. Like. And I, I grew up on that, and then I watched it religiously, and then on HBO and all the other cable channels, I would watch all the horror films. I just got so into it. I was like, this is fun. I love this. I love being scared. And it was, just was Monster Vision ever? No, it Bob wasn't. Now? It's really, it's really <laughs> odd. You know what was though was Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater, Theater, which I think was on TLC. TN no, TNN. TN it was a TNN. Yeah. And and um, so I I did grow up watching that. Yeah. And I remember when he went to Monster Vision, I felt like, oh, it's not the same. Like, I felt like he was more raw right. than the other. Yeah. I, I did enjoy Monster Vision, but I, I didn't watch it as religiously as I do today, like with uh, Sven Gulli. You know, oh, <laughs> like yeah, I watch sure. him. I have to watch him sure. every week. 
That's fantastic. <laughs> um, so, I'm such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so when do you start to develop interest as thinking, you know, this might be something that I'd like to do? And was it always mm-hmm. documentary or, you know, was there a focus on narrative first or, you yeah. know, how did that work? Did it start like with an education or? Um, it's interesting. I, I had no interest ever in making documentaries. I kind sure. of fell into it. We can get into that later. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> really it was, I was so obsessed with movies and then I started I, I was in special ed most of my life. Okay. Um, I have, uh, I, they said I had ADD and I, I mean, I think I was just a normal kid who was creative sure. and you know, how the system works and I got, you know, kind of stuck in it until high school. And, and it was in middle school that one of my first really good teachers that saw my talent and, and saw my potential, he realized that I wanted to make movies and I didn't realize that I did. I just, I kind of, I, just, I wanted to make what I saw. I didn't know what a director was doing or anything. Right. He's like, you want to be a director, Mark? You know, you keep drawing all these, you know, storyboards right. and you want to build sets. And I had this dream that like, I wanted to make a movie in a cavern and I was going to make the cavern out of paper mache and everything. Sure. And I was going to call it the cavern. <laughs> it was so lame, but, uh, you know, it was really Mr. Van Leer that basically made me realize I wanted to be a director. And I was at the age of nine that I realized oh, wow. I wanted to be a director. And ever since I, I've, went for that sure but I grew up poor and we didn't have a camera so I wasn't like a lot of people that you hear stories of I had a super eight you know right 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 I I had nothing until like high school and then we got a VHS camera right which is fine enough but I I didn't have enough years I felt to perfect sure my craft or or learn on my own and so so speaking of like resources and 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 growing up Mm -hmm. uh was that your decision to not go to school in New York and to instead go to school in Vermont? Or how did that come, no. to, how did um, that come to be? What happened was uh, when I was 17, I, again, I grew up with my mom mostly. Right. Um, I mean, I would go visit my dad. Sure. My mom was my parent. My right. dad was like a cool guy that lived in Vermont. <laughs> right. Um, so what happened was uh, around high school time, I started dating, started hanging out with friends. And when, when you're, uh, you have a single parent, you know, who's got an only child, your husband and wife team, you know, if right. it's a boy and a girl, uh, and that's not sexual. It's just, you know, I'm the one that has to take care of things for my mom. Right. I'm yeah. the man of the house. And when I started not being there for her for certain things, she started to kind of lose it. And, um, I think she was a little bipolar. Sure. And, and basically to make a long story short, she tried to kill me and, and I ran away from home. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and so, wow. um, I tried finishing in long Island, uh, high school. Um, I didn't want to leave and go to Vermont. That was right. the last thing on my list. I, I, I was a New Yorker. I didn't want to leave New York, you right. know, and I wanted to go to NYU. I knew it. And, and I had this whole plan, but it all fell apart when I ran away. And sure. my dad's like, you can't keep sleeping on your friend's floor. You got to come up to Vermont, Mark, and finish high school up here. And so I was in my junior year when I left and then finished my senior year in Vermont at this wow. place called Harwood Union High School, which I apparently I was a classmate with uh, Grace Potter. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. So, uh, so it was a little bumfuck high school in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> sure. Vermont. But uh, and it, for that first year, I hated it. I was like, what the, f- are we allowed to curse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Like, I don't, like, everybody's so weird up here. It's like, sure. you got rednecks and hippies and there's nothing in between. Yeah. And like, here I am. I don't know what I am. I'm like a freak coming in from New York. Right. And uh, everybody called me a flatlander. I'm like, what the fuck is a flatlander? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they had accents and, and, you know, the fun thing to do is to drink beer in the woods. And, right. Yeah. <laughs> and smoke a lot of weed. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I was from Long Island where, you know, the weed you smoked had like crystal meth in it. and then like right. up in Vermont, it was all natural. So it was all new to me. Right. Um, and so I hated that first year and then I'm sorry if I'm rambling, no, no, I'm getting close to, <laughs> so, um, I finished high school off and immediately I opened up the paper and I saw that there was a local film being made in Vermont by this guy named Jay Craven, who I associated with Wes Craven, even though he's not, right. I figured, Oh, he's gotta be, you know, Wes Craven's brother or something. Sure. No relation at all. But um, it was this guy, Jay Craven, who a lot of people in high school were telling me, he's the Steven Spielberg of Vermont. He makes movies in Vermont. He casts Michael J. Fox and all these other people. And, you know, his movies are terrible. I don't like any of them. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> besides that, um, <laughs> sorry, Jay. I, I, it's all right. I'm blacklisted with him right. over something um, <laughs> along with a couple other people. But, uh, but no, um, it was... He was going to make a feature-length film using high school students and, I guess, interns from colleges or something were going to be on to 
teach them the process of filmmaking okay. in each department. And there's going to be a rotating circle. Like, so you get to learn editing one day, you get to learn script writing, you know, all that stuff. Sure. And, um, and I, I went to television production class in, in high school in Long Island. That's where I met my wife. Right. <laughs> and uh, we both hit it off because we were fans of Evil Dead, the whole franchise, the Renaissance Pictures sure. franchise. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a tangent. But um, so anyway, uh, I was like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to learn how to work on a narrative feature. And I did, and I could tell right off the bat he was just using the kids. Uh, I didn't realize at the time, but the parents were paying for them to be there, so they were financing the movie. Sure. And he was making most of the kids do PA work. And I was like, this is bullshit. Yeah. I wanted to do special effects if, if I was going to do anything, you know? And sure. So I kind of talked my way into the special effects department. I made all the fake blood. I, and, like This movie involved fake blood. It involved a fake uh, statue of a smelt fish sure. with fire breathing from its mouth. I had my dad design the goddamn thing and um, for free. Wow. And, like I, I did a lot for the special effects and that kind of stuff. I made a little um, dry ice thing that, you know, I didn't have a fog machine. So sure. it's like, I'm going to make fog myself. Right. So anyway, um, the movie came out and I got like assistant to the special effects guy and the art guy that was an intern got right. the special effects director credit and he didn't wow. do jack shit for special effects. And that really burnt me with Jay and, and it taught me a lesson about how the film industry works. Sure. That's just the way it is. Right. Like sometimes you have to suck it up, but it was a great learning experience. And then it was on that set that I learned about Burlington college, Okay. Uh, which was a film school in Vermont and a kid on that set. Um, cause I was telling him, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to apply to NYU and apply to UCLA and all these places that you always hear about. Right. He's like, dude, just apply to, you know, Burlington college. Anybody gets in there. <laughs> like you'd be a homeless guy and they'll, they'll accept you as long as you're paying. Right. And, um, and I'm like, oh really? And like, you know, is, is it a good film school? And he's like, no, they put a film camera in your hands the second you walk in. And I knew that NYU, they only do that after two years of yeah. attending or something. And so I was like, I, I just want to make movies. I don't right. want to learn theory or anything. I know movies. I don't need some asshole telling me, you know, what Hitchcock was thinking <laughs> when he wasn't fucking there. And so, uh, sorry, film critics. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I, I just, I knew I needed to get my hands on equipment. It was right. a perfect opportunity. And so I went to Burlington College. You know, they didn't care that I was a special ed and had sure. shit grades. <laughs> And they were, they were welcoming, and for the first year or two, it was a great school, and then it kind of went away. <laughs> is this around the time that you, like, in your time there, do you start to develop an interest in documentary, or does that... So what happened, it is. It, okay. It, no interest in docs, really, but an okay. interest in making a feature. Sure. Um, a group of my friends and I, from half from college, half from uh, a movie theater I worked at, we all wanted to make a feature, but we didn't... We knew we couldn't make it on film. We had no money. Right. We didn't know how to raise money. <laughs> Um, but we knew that there were these video cameras that were three CCD chip cameras. The VX 2000 was one of them. And sure. if we could get our hands on one of those, you know, like uh, what was that one movie that came out that was shot on it? Um, oh my God. Uh, the guy, his last name's white. He was in, um, he wrote school of rock. Oh, Mike white, Mike white. That first movie uh, he did Chud and Bud or something or that, I know what you're talking I, about. I'm sorry yeah. guys. It was a good movie, but right. I can't remember the name. <laughs> Anyway, they oh, shot on, they shot on show, that camera, so. and so I thought, I could shoot a feature on, on that camera. And then we thought, okay, it's going to look like shit, and it's going to sound like shit, and right. we have no talent. What do we do? And I was like, let's make a mock documentary. Let's go interview Vermont people, because they're so weird and interesting and unique, you right. know, like, full of maple syrup and all kinds of weird <laughs> shit. And I was like, but then we turn the cameras on ourselves, and we film us trying to make the film and show how incompetent we are as documentary filmmakers. And I was very much influenced by... Uh, Spinal Tap. Sure. But the whole intention was just to make a narrative film, but under the guise of a documentary. Right. Because I thought documentaries meant that they're not as good as that. Sure. I was stupid. Sure. I, I didn't know anything. Uh, but it, it was making that film for three years that made me re uh, learn a lot about interview technique and how to set up a camera and a lot about editing. And, um, and so that, that's kind of where I cut my teeth and, okay. and it started to become an interest. And I was like, all right, that was fun. I'm never going to do that again. That was a pain in the ass. And we just showed it to family members, right. you know, I, I never released it anywhere. It's, it's a pathetic movie, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, I made a couple of short films in Vermont and my intention was to make a narrative feature for my final for Burlington college if right. possible. And I slowly started to realize that's not going to happen. And then I, I graduated in 2006 and then I think it was around 2007 that a, an old friend from a movie theater I worked at, uh, he had since gone to Full Sail in Florida, oh, sure. which was a yeah. college. And uh, there was a two-year program back then, no degree. And then he went out to L.A. to make it like we all tried to do. And, right. and 
he had a terrible experience. Not not that everybody does, but uh, he spent he, he he literally spent just a couple of years just being bodyguards for actors. And, okay, and like to him it was shit work because he wasn't right. creating. He was like Paris Hilton's like tenth bodyguard. Right, he had a whole sure. bunch. And um, he's like, I'm miserable. I want to come back. I want to make a film, and I want it to be a documentary. Wow. And I was like, really documentary huh <laughs> and I, I remembered how much of a pain in the ass the previous one was sure and i was like well why are you contacting me he's like because you made that movie which by the way is was called a band called or not called a band called it was called uh, uh what state is vermont in okay <laughs> um and that's what i called that first documentary sure. um because every time i'd go back home to long island i'd say i'm going up to vermont people would be like what state is that <laughs> like, nobody knew where the fuck vermont was so um he's like i want to do a, a real documentary with you not a joke like your last one because um, you know how to interview people, you know how to set up cameras and everything. It's like, I got two subjects. One's on the Minutemen at the border in Texas, um, and maybe following their lives or following you know what's going on down there. And the other would be on this limbless hip-hop musician in Connecticut who makes beats with a stick between his head and his shoulders, and he has a partner that he rhymes with. And the limbless kid sounds like Eminem. He's like, it's fucking awesome, and they're friends with Wu-Tang Clan and everything. And so I immediately gravitated towards the Minutemen thing first because I, I, the gear started grinding. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be cool. We could spend half a year with the Minutemen, half a year with the Mexican trying to cross the border. Sure. And then maybe they meet. I had this grand idea for this amazing documentary that would never get made because of legal reasons right. and, and life, you know, risking reasons. And then I was like, that's going to cost too much money. But this limbless kid is kind of cool. And he's like, I knew you'd like that because you're in the freaky shit. Right. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty awesome. And he's a really good rapper. I right. wouldn't be into it if he wasn't good and, and if this wasn't as intriguing as it is. And, and so we spent three years making that. Wow. Um, and I ended up calling it Against All Odds, which is a terrible title, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, I just shot for three years, and it just never got made. Wow. Um, bad things happened. Sure. I lost a producer. He just gave up. Um, I was on my own a lot. And I almost died a couple of, I, I almost died once in a car accident driving home oh late God. from a concert. And I just, it was too much. Sure. Like, I, I had to give it up because it was hurting my life and I was about to like just sell my house just to get out of it. Right. And, uh, uh, sorry about that. No, you're fine. <laughs> um, anyway, um, it was, uh, do you want me to keep going? Yeah. <laughs> I'm absolutely. leading to a band called Death. No, this <laughs> is, this want... <clears throat> no, I mean that, that becomes an, so okay. it, well it, with a band called Death, I mean, so you're talking about, you know, the first one was so difficult, you know, the mockumentary. Yeah. Then this, I mean, taking three years of your life really bad. To, to have something, you know, that you yeah. don't, unfortunately don't get to finish. How does a, a band called Death come about? And I mean, you know. How but, do I convince myself to do it again? Well, yeah, myself? especially, I mean, you have to know, uh, you know, with the limited exposure to, to documentary filmmaking that I've had is like, yeah. you have to know you're going to love that subject for yeah. a while. You do. So like, how does that come about? How do you convince yourself again? Well, I, I immediately, I, I knew going into the hip hop thing, I had to like these kids. Sure. And so we went down and visited them a couple of times and I was like, I fucking love them. It, they're like the kids I grew up with. They're funny. They're vulgar. You know, <laughs> they don't hold anything back. Sure. Um, but they also had their quirks. Every band does in my opinion. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Like, they a little bit of diva and they didn't want to talk about other bands that they were in. I'm like, come on, <laughs> get, a, get that shit out of here. <laughs> um, but anyway, with a band called Death, um, what happened was um, the hip hop thing just kind of, it was just sitting there and I, I hit a wall. Sure. And I, creatively, I was lost. It was, I was blocked. And I was, I remember um, a friend of mine asked me to come help him shoot a music video. He was going to DP it. Okay. And this guy named Jeff Hallett was going to direct it, who was um, a guy from my college who I had heard about. He had tat sleeves and a shaved head. I was like, sure. he, you know, he likes heavy metal. He makes heavy metal music videos. Right. I was like, I like heavy metal. And, <laughs> you know, I, I want to make heavy metal music videos. So I was like, all right, I'll come, you know, help out in this music video. And me and Jeff hit it off immediately on that. And we started talking. We both liked horror films. And we sure. liked heavy metal. And then all of a sudden he's like, by the way, um, I'm about to shoot this like 20 minute documentary on my friend's band death. And the New York times wrote about him and you know, the first back punk rock band before the sex pistols and the Ramones. Right. And, this, and he just gave me the whole spiel. And I remember thinking this guy's fucking bullshitting me. Like none of this, like I would know about this band, right. you know, cause I didn't read the New York times article at the time. I didn't read New York times at the time. Right. Um, and he's like, no, no, trust me. You know, it's just a 20 minute doc. And there's a couple of interviews. I just need some help. And you know, I don't know what I'm doing a documentary and you made the hip hop doc. And I was like, all right, well send me an email and I'll think about it. And he sent me an email and it was like the synopsis for how he saw the film. It was the New York times article and it was two tracks that were available online at the time. Cause I don't think the album just came out yet. Sure. It was going to come out like a couple of months later. And, uh, I blew him off for two weeks. <laughs> I was like, fuck this guy. 
Okay. I, I told him when I when he was telling me this stuff, I was like, you have no idea how much it sucks to make a documentary. Right. Yeah. It is it'll take years, it costs tons of money, and in the end you get nothing. <laughs> I was like, because at the time I, I never finished it. Sure. But, um, I was just miserable about it, and um, so I blew him off for two weeks, and then finally I was sitting in my office trying to edit a scene for the hip-hop doc, and I remember just staring at the wall and thinking, it's all over, I, I can't, I'm blocked, I, I don't have any more juice for this, right. I'm burnt out, I don't wanna do this anymore, and I remember thinking, I like rock and roll a lot. Sure. And, I had since lost love for hip hop. I grew up in hip hop. I was the only white kid in my school, you know. But by the time I had moved to Vermont, I didn't like anything new that was coming out. And not that their stuff was new, it was very vintagey, like old school hip hop. But I was just like, I'm so sick of that now. I just want to go to rock and roll where right. people have instruments and stuff. It's just so much cooler than me. Um, I was like, if it's a 20 minute doc, let me look at his little fucking email and right. help him out with his little documentary. <laughs> Open up that email. I read a synopsis. Like, oh, that's, that's what he told me. And then I read the New York Times article, and I saw it on that scale, the full-page photo. I was like, holy shit. Like, he wasn't lying. This is a real deal. Right. And then I played Keep on Knocking, which was the first of the two tracks he sent me, and I fell out of my seat, and I immediately called him back, and I said, you motherfucker, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't tell me it was this good. Right. I mean, Jesus Christ, I feel like I'm hearing Paint It Black for the first time, and I'm the only one that's hearing it. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm going to help you, but it ain't going to be a 20 minute documentary. Right. We're going to spend years making this. We're going to lose all of our money. We're going to lose all of our hair. It's going to suck, <laughs> but we have to make this. Like, right. I just knew it. It just, and he's like, if you think we could do it as a feature, let's do it. And I, I said, I think we can, as long as you don't give up. And as long as I don't give up, like I need a partner. And, sure. and he was, he was like a perfect partner. And we did it. it took four years, I think. Wow. Yeah. So what were some of the, I mean, that obviously a documentary anytime, it's a tremendous amount of you know research and resources. Yeah. What were some of the doc, uh, the <clears throat> excuse me difficulties that you ran into during the the initial process? Um, well, always it's it's getting subjects to talk about things they don't want to talk about, sure. and it's building a trust and a friendship with them, and and it's not fake. I I have to like these people right. or, or find something inside of them that you know that I like because sure. there's some people I've interviewed in the past that are miserable people who've done terrible things to other people, but and to the I, same respect, I mean, they have to like you, they as have well. to like you. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's a little bit of building a friendship. Sometimes you have to do it going right in with cameras, but I try not to, I, you know, it's, it's really tricky. It depends on the, the individual. Everyone's right. different. So I don't think there's any one process that works, but that's the hardest part. Death didn't want to talk about their brother, David Hackney, who was the founder sure. of the band, uh, getting into drinking, you right, know, and yeah. they didn't want to talk about his downfall at all. And it took us a year and a half to get him to open up about that. Right. Um, the hip hop kids didn't want to talk about their previous band, the Acolytes, um, for two years. And finally I got them to talk about him, but you know, really wasn't anything usable. Oh, sure. Um, but it's just chipping away, it's chipping and... away. It's, it's, it's a process. And that's why docs take so long. I right. think sometimes, I mean, some I've talked to the guy that did the Sly and the Family Stone doc here, he's yeah, 12 yeah. years making that fucking thing. Yeah. God bless him. I don't know how the hell he did it. But, <laughs> um, I mean, after three years seems to be my limit. Right. Three to four years. Like, after that, I'm done. Like, the film's done. It's ready. Yeah. But um, that's the hardest part for me, really. Sure. I think. Um, the other hard part is not having money. <laughs> right, yeah. I haven't made a doc yet that had money. I, right. I've always done out of pocket, which is bad. Don't do that. Yeah, okay. Um, so that, that that's interesting. That'll come yeah. back up here in a little bit. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> um, have, have money and raise the money and make sure you raise enough so that you could pay yourself because in the end you will not make money on your film at sure. all. I haven't seen a penny from a band called death yet. Sure. So. Um, but what you did see was yeah. incredible accolades. I mean, oh the reception was, it's insane. It was nuts. It's um, the, the stuff that has happened since the film has come out, especially for the band. Yeah. Phenomenal. I mean, to speak a little bit about the revitalization of the band, but also, you know, I mean, working with draft house and yeah. things like that. I mean, talk about, you know, the experience for, for both sides. Um, yeah. I mean, well, the whole thing was just, it's almost like a blur to me because we were so bright eyed and new to this sure. distribution game. Uh, when our film premiered at the Los Angeles film festival, I didn't realize that, you know, they're going to have an after party and there's going to be like 50 people there trying to sell you on going with their company. Right, <laughs> and right. I don't think we saw Draft House that night. I think uh, Evan Husney, who worked for them, came out for the second or third screening. And uh, and uh, you guys know him? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> and um, and so um, I think I think it was Zach Carlson. Is, yeah. I'm saying his last name right. Who told Evan to go see it and Evan went to go see it. 
and then Evan told his COO at Draft House, uh, uh, James Shapiro, Shapiro, and um, he saw it, and they they all loved it, and um, just they were the ones that made us the best offer. I mean, sure. you know, some people like big companies, big cable companies, were like, "We'll take it, but for free." <laughs> well, and it's also interesting because a, a company like Draft House yeah. and everybody that you just mentioned within the company, yeah. they just care so much about yeah. film from start to finish. I mean, it's... And I could tell these guys really, really dug the movie. It wasn't absolutely. fake or, you know, it wasn't this thing that put us on. And so... Right. And, and uh, but I let the producers really take care of it. I, I had no... All me and Jeff really had to say was, you know, yes, we should go with them, you know. Sure. But, but at the time, I didn't know Draft House. I There's no Draft House theaters anywhere near me at the right, time. Right, right. And I didn't know that they were distributing films. So at, the, at first, I was bummed because I was like, really? We're going with Draft House? Like, you know, Showtime was pitching us. Like, what about, <laughs> you know, what about HBO? Right. Um, and they're like, no, no, trust me. They're new. They're going to be cool. They're going to be hip. And I was like, all right, I, I trust you. And it was mostly Scott Mosier, my producer, oh. a band called Death. Um, I, who, know I don't know if you knew that. I but didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He was the one I was like, trust me, guys. I, I think we should go with these. Well, believe in Scott. That's yeah, the yeah. guy. <laughs> believe in Scott. He, he's, a, I tell you, we are so lucky that we had him. Yeah, I've heard nothing. I mean, yeah. he's legendary. He saved the movie. Me and sure. Jeff almost quit. Really? Because two years, I think it was two years into making it, we hit a wall. Right. And we were like, we're out of money. Jeff's about to get a divorce. <laughs> like, oh whole world's falling apart, <laughs> right. you know? Like, Jeff's spending time away from work, and it's not good. And, and me, I'm about to sell my house because I'm so broke. I'm right. selling gear. <laughs> and so he, Jeff called me up from work. He's like, Mark, we got to just stop filming. I'm sorry. You know, we got to put it on hold or just quit or make it a 10-year project. You know, right. like Coop Dreams or something. And I was like, oh. I was hoping you wouldn't say that, <laughs> right. you know, like, and, and he's like, you know, maybe we could raise money. I'm like, how the fuck are we going to raise money? Like we didn't, we didn't know about Kickstarter back right. then. Um, anyway, we hung up the phone. I was super depressed. And then two hours later, a friend started frantically texting me. He's like, how come you didn't tell me Scott Mosher was all about your movie? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's the producer of Clerks and Chasing Amy yeah. and Dogma and, and, and Goodwill Hunting. You know, that Scott Motion's like, yeah, man, he's on Twitter right now. He saw your trailer that you put out because I had since cut a trailer. Sure. And he's like, you saw your trailer. He's like raving about it. He wants to see the movie. I'm like, well, I'm not on fucking Twitter at the time. Like, I, I hated Twitter at the time. I was like, what the fuck is everyone doing this Twitter thing for? And so I was like, can you please like message him and just give him my email in right. private or something? Can you do that? He's like, I think I can. So gave Scott my email. And within a couple of hours, he called me and Jeff. Wow. And we had a conference call and, and just... We sent him an NDA, sent him footage. He's like, guys, this is amazing. He's like, I'll tell you right now, this is better looking than most of the doc shit that I've seen. And wow. He's like, I'd really like to come on board as your producer. So it was like a Cinderella Incredible. story. Yeah, absolutely. And then he brought in his friends to help us finish, sure. too, who are also producers. Jerry Farrar uh, came in as a producer oh, wow. from Entourage. That's fantastic. So it was pretty cool. So to talk a little bit about the just the revitalization, I mean, it's so wild that now that you like turn on TV, you turn yeah. on Ash vs. Evil Dead. Yeah, yeah. Then, oh, my you know, God. That was like, to me, that was song. like the high point, <laughs> man. <laughs> because you have no idea, like, me and my wife met yeah. because of that whole series of movies. Right. We were both super fans, and we would talk about the Evil Dead every day on the school bus. Right. It was just cute, you know, like... <laughs> you know, like she thought Ash was fucking hot. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, he is hot. I wish I was Ash. And I, so it was like, it means a lot um, that it got on that show. Sure. And, and the Michigan connection too. Like, Absolutely. I just, I know that somebody there is yep. like, yeah, Michigan music, man. Yeah. They just, and just, I mean, to see a new generation get yeah. to experience that music and get so to appreciate great. that music is, is really wild. And it, it, the film touches so many hearts for so many different reasons. And the, I knew that we had um, achieved our goal with the film at the world premiere when we were leaving the theater and we bumped into this little sweaty guy who was crying in the middle of this huge crowd wow. and he had a cell phone in one hand and he's freaking me out and he grabbed me with the other and he was like shaking and he's like crying he's like dude I haven't talked to my dad in five years but because of your movie I just called him and I was like holy shit like we we, wow. we did what we were supposed to do like holy shit. you know this film is meant for you guys that's <laughs> and incredible like, and so wow. but since then also like just the band's revitalization you know revitalization they're playing everywhere they're yeah. playing all over the world they were just inducted into the Smithsonian back in like September. So they're in the new African-American History Museum. Incredible. And there's a mention of the film. I mean, it's just like, it, it's insane. Yeah. Because I remember at the time we were competing against Searching for Sugar Man. And, right. And that was like stealing all of our thunder. Right. And uh, that got the Oscar. 
And I was like, man, no one's ever going to remember our fucking movie. And now that's all you hear about is our movie left and sure. right, which is kind of cool. Wow. Yeah. Well, kind of moving forward, <clears throat> is there is there a uh, any sort of like thought at that point, okay, I'm going to take a step away from documentary or does oh, yeah. the crest immediately like, be, like I, jump into your life? So the crest <laughs> fell into my lap kind of at the right and wrong time of my life because... I, I still wanted to make narrative films. I knew I was a narrative filmmaker at sure. heart. Um, the documentary thing was a fluke to me. Um, but Scott Mosier had become my mentor by that point. I would always ask him advice, you know, like, should I move to LA? Should I do this? Should I do that? And one of the things I asked him was, um, like, what do I need to get, like, a manager or an agent or just, you know, to keep doing this? Right. Is <laughs> like, you got to have projects lined up, you got to have content, you, you know when you meet an agent or, or manager before they even take you in, they're going to want to say, what do you got next? And so I didn't have anything next at the time. And, um, I was at the Vermont premiere of a band called death. And, um, and a, a friend of mine who I worked with, the one that approached me about the hip hop doc, actually, sure. um, he came to that screening and he had his cousin with him, Andy, who's a surfer from Cape Cod. And, you know, after everybody shook my hands and said, yeah, great job on Bank Old Death and blah, blah, blah. He, they, he came up to me. He's like, hey, Mark, I just want to introduce you to my cousin Andy. You know, he lives in Cape Cod. He's a surfer. He just discovered that he has a cousin in San Diego who's a surfer as well. They never knew about each other. It's crazy. And he's like, they're going to meet for the first time in Ireland and surf the ways of their ancestors while they learn about their shared history. Um, and I was like, and then he's like, we're all related to this King of the Blasket Islands, which are these group of rural islands off the sure. western side of Ireland. I'm like, King of Ireland? What the fuck are you talking about? I was like, it sounds cool. And he's like, the reason they found each other was because a fiddle was found in an attic, just like the record in a band called Death. Uh, and somebody wrote a blog about it who happened to be a, their, all of their uh, uncle, right. their uncle Larry, who's actually coming to the screening tonight. Oh, wow. Um, he wrote a blog about it, and the one in San Diego found the blog and basically found Andy through the blog. And I was like, man, this is similar themes to a band called Death. Like, you know, the the sons never knowing about their fathers as Death, you know? Sure. And only knowing them as reggae musicians and becoming punk rockers themselves and, and finding shit in addicts and stuff. I was like, I could do this. But I told him, I was like... 20 minute doc and you gotta help me find the money I'm not gonna find any money you know so is that where Kickstarter comes in uh and what what, what was kind yeah, of yeah that's where Kickstarter came okay. in I was like I, I think we both ag- oops sorry <laughs> we both so John's father is pretty well off but we both agreed we want to try to raise the money sure. to do it we don't want to use his dad's money um just to make ourselves like at least feel more professional I right. guess, or something. We did a Kickstarter and it was, it was the hardest fucking thing I've ever had to do. It's, it's a full-time job. And, but, a, you know, but a great it, success. It, it's a, well. it was a great success. We, we asked for 30 and I think we got $32,000 and, um, and that was great. And then we, we just went off, started shooting um, and slowly realized that we're, that $32 went very quick after a trip to Ireland. Sure. <laughs> and, and then we realized, well, we need more money. And that's when his dad started putting in some money. And then we started getting investors and sure. stuff. But, uh, but the, the great thing about, uh, the crest was I wasn't using my credit card anymore. Right. Like they were financing it. I wasn't getting paid. I was working for free and losing a lot of work. But still, it was like a step up for me. Like I, I wasn't gonna go broke maxing out my own credit cards sure. making this. So <clears throat> now to that point, having you know made or worked on several documentaries in the crest, what do you, what did you find? You know, especially now having finished and looking back, or some of the like differences and some of the similarities between the process and just mm-hmm. between projects. Yeah. Um, well, with with the hip hop doc, I really didn't know what I was doing. I sure. kind of went in. I was like, uh, it'll be cinema verte, but then. I started filming talking heads and so it was like a combination. I was like, maybe that's my thing. And it, it is kind of my thing. It's what I've been doing for all the docs. Um, with a band called death, I got into doing a, a lot of animation with photos and stuff. Cause the band had no footage of themselves. Right. So I was like, okay, I incorporate like animated photos and stuff. That's interesting. You know, that tells a story. Um, and then the crest is just like all of that combined. Um, uh, but a little bit more perfected, a little bit more mature, I guess. A little less sloppy. I mean, not to say a bankle death is sloppy, but sure. I see so many mistakes in it. And I wish I could go back and fix. And, and the crest has even more mistakes. In my opinion. There's always mistakes if you're an artist. Well, I mean, yeah, um, you're never happy. <laughs> but, but, but definitely, like the crest was like 
I wanted to attack it a little differently. I wanted to be a little bit more mature about it. I didn't want to be as fast paced and sure. in your face as a band called death. I wanted to kind of take in the scenery as much as possible. And cause so it's so beautiful out there in Ireland and especially this part that we shot in only a handful of films have been shot there. And one of them was the ending scene of a, the force awakens. Right. I mean, you know, you, you don't see images like that right. anywhere else in the world. It looks like a different planet. Um, one of the other interesting things is too, I mean, you focus, you have, you know, the two previous works, mm -hmm. very music centric. So obviously the sound of the documentary yeah. is kind of dictated through that, but with the crest, you know, there's, you're dealing with a, a very specific place in a very specific time. Yeah. How did you go about thinking about the sound of, of the crest? Yeah. Um, I, th I thought a lot about it because I, I was worried about in, in, in terms of, like music for the score. Like I didn't want it to feel generic Irish. I wanted sure. it to feel like a combination of old Irish and modern. And I, I didn't know what that was really. And, and um, I kept thinking, well, maybe it should all be like just synthesizer or something, or, or maybe it should just be modern and, and not Irish at all. Like I wasn't sure what was going to be the right angle to take for uh, a band called death. We had composers. It was the first time I ever worked with them. Um, and I thought about going back to the same guys because they were so great, and one of them was Irish. Sure. But at the time uh, that I started cutting the film and we were thinking about getting a composer, um, I was still perusing. I was on Twitter by then, by the way. <laughs> I became you know, a fan of Twitter because sure. of a band called Death. Um, and I saw somebody tweeted about a band called Death and raved about it, and I saw that it was the composer of Hobo with the Shotgun, <laughs> uh, Darius Halbert. And I immediately wrote him back because I was like, dude, I fucking loved Hobo with the Shotgun score. Like, I, I love that music. Like, he did a great job. And he's like, oh, thank you so much. I loved your movie. And, you know, if you ever have anything lined up, let me know. I'd love to work with you. And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, I don't know if it's the right thing for you. Because at the time, I thought maybe he only makes that kind of music, the Hobo with the Shotgun, sure. like synthesizer. And he's like, he's like, no, no, dude, I, I like to do a lot of different styles. He's like, uh, and my wife's Irish. Um, wow. And I actually have a theme that I wrote um, kind of for her that I've been looking to put into a movie wow. that would be the right movie. And I was like, well, shit, I, I think I got the right movie. And, sure. and so uh, it just, it was amazing. Like we, we talked a lot about, you know, should it be modern? Should it be classic? And he kind of found this interesting way to have like a mid mid ground right. <laughs> combination of the two and, and I don't know. I just, it's like one of my favorite scores I've ever sure. heard. I, it it, I it mean, surprises me that it's in the movie. You know, <laughs> right. like every time I watch the movie, I'm like, the score is too good for the fucking movie. Right, like, right. It's better than the movie. And he just won an award for it, which is great. That's fantastic. Yeah. It, it is a character in itself in the documentary. Yeah. I mean, it was it important just... because part of our movie is about this fiddle. Right. And I knew we needed a fiddle in there. And, and so he found, I'm, I wish I could remember the guy's name. Uh, he found it, uh, this guy that is a fiddle player, uh -huh. and he did the fiddle playing for throughout the movie. Incredible, which was great. yeah. It's, it's it's it really is. I mean, the sound design in, in you know both band called Death and and this are just. They're, I mean, they're incredible. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, so it's thank you. That's yeah, really it's, wild. It's, band called Death was actually sound mixed at Skywalker Ranch. Wow. Which was kind of interesting because when our film premiered at LAFF. One of the things they did back then was they would ship all the feature-length filmmakers to Skywalker Ranch for a three-day retreat where you just hang out and you eat food that's grown and raised on the ranch and you get to walk around and, you know, look at the fucking statue from Indiana Jones oh and, and uh, believe it or not, there's very little Star Wars stuff there, but, right. but I got to see the room where our film was mixed and it was like a little shoebox. It's like, holy shit, like, it's just like being back home. That's it's incredible. Like, so it was really cool. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, so, you know, kind of moving forward from there, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about a band called Death and their Crest and inevitably your own personal life is this focus on family. I mean, they're, mm. you know, all three have a, have a, or both of those, you know, documentaries have a, a strong, yeah. you know, emphasis on family and, and even the, the hip hop one too. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's very much about those kids' families and, and stuff and is, and then, you know, you just recently within the last few years have reconnected with, you know, a, a lost, long lost, a sister. Long lost sister. Yeah. Uh, what, I mean, what is it about the familial bond that, that speaks to you as a filmmaker and speaks to you as yeah. a storyteller? Well, I think growing up with very little family in my life, it was really just me and my mom. She, sure. she kept the rest of the family away from us for some reason. We would see them every now and then, but it was always just us, you know, like two against the world type thing. Sure. And, and, uh, but I always, I always wanted a, a real family. Like I wanted the, 
you know, mom and dad and brother and sister. I had nobody to fucking play with. I was in special ed, you know, yeah. got my ass beat in school. I was the only white kid. So I always got picked on and moved around. And so like, it was a very like loner kind of life, you know? And, um, so I just, I, I dreamed of those days of just having like, I don't know, like the, uh, Brady Bunch you know, thing going sure. on or something. And I, so I guess subconsciously that's kind of what's happened with the films. Like I didn't mean to make movies about families and right. have strong fam, but I feel so good about telling those stories. And I, and when I meet these people, I become a family member. Every single movie I've made, the people I've shot think of me as a family member sure. and, and I think of them as a family member. Right. I mean, we're like brother or sister or mother, like the, um, wife of Bobby Hackney senior calls me her son and I call her mom all the time. I mean, it's just, <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's, I, it, I think it's just growing up with very little family in my life. And yeah, just recently, I mean, uh, finding my sisters, it's been a trip because when I ran away from home, uh, from my mom, she didn't talk to me for two years. Right. And that killed me. I, I lost this piece of my life that was very important to me. She was like my world. And here she is, you know, saying, fuck off. Don't ever talk to me again for two years. And then she found out I got married and was going to college and contacted me and started reconnecting. Sure. You know, I like, I had talked shit about her to everybody. I was like, she sucks. She's a fucking bitch. And then all of a sudden I started finding this love for her again. And then she's like, by the way, I'm dying of cancer. <laughs> and then 2004 comes, uh, she visited Vermont one last time. And we had lunch and she's like, I need to tell you something. I thought it was going to be something about the cancer. And she's like, you don't know this. No one else does. But in 1964, I actually married Henry Gibson, not the actor, <laughs> but, uh, Henry Gibson was this guy I knew as a family friend. Right. He was like a little nerdy guy that helped build rockets. that went up in the space back in the sixties wow. uh, for the space program. She's like, I married him in Mexico, so it wasn't legal, but we had a child and I gave her up for adoption. And she's like, I had to, because we couldn't afford to raise her. That's all she told me. And she's like, and Henry found out her name. He didn't t contact her, but he found out her name and he knows where she lives. And so I was in shock. Sure. <clears throat> you know, here I am, somebody who grew up very lonely and very alone his entire life is being told I have a sister out there. Right. And um, shortly after that, my mom went back to Long Island and ended up dying that winter, which was a terrible time for me. And I remember uh, for that first year, it was just a black hole in my life. I right. quit college, quit work. I was, you know, didn't talk to my wife. Nobody wow. could understand what was going on with me. I shut everyone out. And then I started coming back into the world and I really started thinking, once I started making the documentaries, I was like, maybe I should document me trying to find my sister. Right. That'd be so great to just find her. Cause I had this void in my life all of a sudden of this emptiness, you know, of my mom being gone. And for 10 years, I kept telling myself, should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? And I asked friends on Facebook and there was always 50-50. Like someone would be like, yes, you gotta do it. And someone would be like, no, no, it's a bad idea. Because, right. you know, it could turn out terrible. And uh, I just didn't do it because of fear. I let fear get to me. And, and, um, and then just a couple of years ago, two years ago, I think, I was down in the basement digging through my mom's old boxes. And um, it's tons of memories. My mom was the best archivist. And I now realize that she's the reason why I'm a good documentarian. She just saved everything. Sure. Like when the World Trade Centers went down, every newspaper, she taped every news broadcast, tons of VHS tapes of that. Wow. And so I do the same thing. And <laughs> I didn't realize that I got it from her. Um, I'm digging in and I find this one random sheet of paper in a box that's my mom writing the adoption agency where she gave the child up to. Um, but she, she wrote this letter to them in 1993. And it's her pleading with them to give them her daughter's name and location. And she says in the letter, I was forced to give her up for adoption from the man I was with because he threatened to leave me if I didn't. It's completely different than what she told me. That right. was a mutual thing. Right. And so now I'm thinking, now I have to make this fucking film because this is terrible. Like sure. my mom wanted to see her daughter back in the 90s, you know. And so I, I put another post on Facebook and you know, everyone's like 50-50 and, and I just didn't do it because of fear. And then a year later, or a couple months later, I'm outside chopping wood in my backyard. Fucking FedEx guy comes up, gives me an envelope. I, I open it, and it's a letter from my sister. She somehow found me through uh, going on Ancestry.com and doing a DNA test. She found her nephew, um, who's related to Henry. And Henry, you know, she started talking to Henry, and he's like, you know what? You should talk to Mark. You know, he's sure. Patty's son. And we connected through email, and it's... Yeah, you know, I, I told her the whole story about me and my mom, whole life story, both of us, just right. to get her up to speed. And I'm like, I'm sorry if this scares you or anything, but I feel like you should know this. Wow. And a couple months later, we met for the first time. And, and I documented the whole thing because I figured eh, I might make a film out of this someday. 
so a two-part question then yeah. i mean what was that experience like and well yeah let's handle that first yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of loaded I mean, in and of itself oh it scared the shit out of me sure I, I remember sitting in the car for like a half an hour before i went to her door <laughs> my friends in there have a has a camera on me i'm like I, I can't do it i don't know if i can do it i was so scared um but you know the letter she gave me the thing that uh made me do it the most was knowing that she was okay. I, I thought this could be a drug addict or something, right. like, but she was healthy. She had a family. She's been married for 25 years. Wow. Uh, she had a photo and her son looks just like Henry Gibson. And wow. I was like, holy shit. Like, this is exactly what I wanted. Like, it was like right. the best Christmas present. Like, we're happy. We're healthy. And we want you to become part of our family. Sure. <laughs> so, so is the, is there still, is there enough fulfillment out of, out of meeting and having that interaction that the documentary <clears throat> isn't necessary to you? Or? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I, the void's gone. Sure. It's completely gone. I'm happy. I'm happier now. I've always been a depressed person, right. but I'm so much happier now that she's in my life and we text each other all the time. And it just, it just feels so good. She looks so much like our mother. My, right. Our mother was really hot. <laughs> like she was, she was a model in the right. 60s and 70s sure. and she's a very attractive woman. Um, and I see so many features of my mom. I'm just like, oh my God, it's every time she smiles, it's the same smile. Right. And, and it just, it just feels good to know that she cares about me and right. my well-being and I care about her and her. Well, she checks in on me and I check in on her. That's fantastic. It's so cool. That's really great. So now sorry no that's that's great a lot of tangents here (laughs) it's all it's all wonderful um so now you find yourself you know in projects that you're working on currently Mm -hmm. um in a little bit of you know a little bit of everything a little bit of everything (laughs) can you tell us a little bit about you start you just got done producing a a narrative work can you tell us a little bit about that yeah yeah that's wild so earlier in the year um I wonder how I should lead into that because I did start producing two short kind of narrative shorts Okay. Um, for this company that actually had money. And so I had to, I was basically like a line producer, but I was also making things happen, getting sure. the crew together. Um, but it was through that, that a friend of mine um, saw I was working and doing that stuff and, and he was about to do a feature. And this friend of mine's name is David Jean Cola and he runs a company called Edgewood Studios, okay. which is based out of Rutland, Vermont. And Edgewood Studios is famous for this one movie that they made called Time Chasers, uh, which he made using his dad's money in 1989. It's one of the worst time chasing movies ever made. Um, but it was parodied by Mystery Science Theater 3000 oh, wow. in the 90s. And it was very popular in the 90s. And, and it brought a lot of attention to him. And, and through that, he was able to raise money and make uh, a series. I, I don't know how many he's made, maybe 50. Not He hasn't directed them all. Like sure, other directors sure. have come in, too. But uh, like basically B movies, like sci-fi channel type movies, disaster movies, sure. sci-fi movies. And, um, and so it kept building up to this last film he made called uh, Illegal Alien starring Anna Nicole Smith. And it was her last film. Wow. Uh, do you know who Anna Nicole oh, yeah, Smith is? Of course, yeah. And, um, and so she passed away uh, while he was making the film. Wow. It was a terrible tragedy because sure. her son also passed away. And... Um, he all of a sudden was thrown into this media blitz. He was interviewed everywhere and people were saying he was exploiting her death and it was terrible. Right, yeah. But he was documenting the whole process of the making of the movie as an insurance policy because the insurance company wouldn't insure her. Um, and he used that footage along with footage of him dealing with this crazy media blitz to make a documentary about what happens wow. when a famous person dies. Sure. And, um, and so, and paparazzi and everything. And so, uh, it was, that movie was called, uh, addicted to fame. I like the original title, which was craptastic originally. <laughs> um, but it was very, you know, self-deprecating and everything. Sure. But that film killed him. It was a documentary and he, he's like, this sucks. I spent years making that film. I'm not getting anything out of it. Right. You know, it's not making any money on, on iTunes or wherever. And so he's depressed and he stopped making films for eight years. So anyway, he so I was producing, and he's been meaning to get back into the game again. He's like, sure. I have. He calls me up. He's like, Mark, I saw you're producing these two shorts. Listen, I have this script uh, for a sci-fi movie I want to make. It's a time chaser movie. It's he refers to it as like Iron Man meets Born Ultimatum. It's it's nothing like Iron Man. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> it's Back to the Future meets North by Northwest meets okay. Born Ultimatum. Okay. Like those three combined, if you could imagine that. And he's like, I want you to come in. I want you. I want to show you how I'm doing. What my plan is here. So I go into his office, and it's 
the same way he makes all of his movies, which is he buys the tail ends of all these big action movies like Michael Bay movies, right. all these car chase scenes, and then he edits chase scenes you know, from this footage, sure. and then he writes his scripts around it, just like Ed Wood. Did. I was gonna say the yeah. Ed Wood method. It's the Ed Wood method. Oh, Edgewood me- method. Yeah. <laughs> sure. And and so I'm like, all right, he's doing the same thing again, same right. same shit. But uh, but no, I mean, I was like, the footage was great that he got. Sure. And he he edited 40 minutes of a, of just chase scenes and explosions and shit. I was like, okay. And I was like, you know, I'll read the script. And he's he's like, I want you to come on board as the producer. Um, and, and uh, just do this with me. And he's like, I need a buddy. <laughs> I was like, okay. I read the script and I was like, all right, yeah, like this is a fun movie. It's right. definitely got that like 80s, like, you know, kind of like sci fi vibe to it. Sure. Um, and so I, I did. I, it was my first time producing a narrative feature wow. and I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about SAG and how much it's a pain in the ass to deal with. Um, you know, like SAG held like $10,000 out of our measly $50,000 budget Jesus. for like months. Right. And we wanted to pay our actors as soon as we were done shooting, but right. we couldn't because of that. Um, and, and so it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a grueling nine days. It was a very short shoot because we had all the action footage. Right. And all the stuff we were shooting was just little... Exposition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the casting process was really fun because it was like, who could we get to be in our very low-budget sci-fi movie? Right. Like, who could we afford but as a name, somebody that goes to conventions? And so he started spitballing ideas. He had a poster of uh, Flash Gordon on his wall signed uh, sure. by Sam Jones. He's like, right. Sam Jones! He could be... You know, we had this <laughs> We had this one guy um, in the movie who's like a hitman, kind of like uh, um, Anton Chigar from uh, oh, sure. no, no Country. Oh, sure. No Country, yeah. Um, it, uh, only a little bit more robotic. Okay. <laughs> like, like A little bit like Terminator. Like, sure. He's a force that you can't... And uh, I was like, yeah, Sam Jones is perfect. And he's like... How do we get him? And luckily, one of the producers, John James, who was on the show called Dynasty, oh sure, um, yeah. who's all, he's also in the movie. Um, he's like, well, I'm friends with, with John James. I go to conventions with him all the time. So we got John, James, or we got uh, uh, Sam Jones. Yeah, I mean. sure. And um, and then there was this female part, and we were struggling with who who do we cast as this one like she's kind of like a an agent you know, for this company, like CAA or something. Right. I can't even remember now. But, um, <laughs> but you know, we were, we were going to get Barbara Crampton. Um, she's a friend of Edgewood's. She was in an Edgewood movie, and she's from Rutland, Vermont. Sure. So it'd be like coming home to her. Absolutely. And, and we were on the phone with her, and, and it seemed like it was going to work, but then her schedule just didn't work out, and she felt bad. Um, so at the very last minute, like, we were down to the wire. We needed to cast somebody. I'm like, what about Sean Young? Like, what was it in your head that that was the name? Like, where did, where did Sean I, Young... Like, well, I was thinking about my buddy's film, Jug Face. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, Chad... Chad... Cr- yeah. uh, Kinkle, Kinkle, right? Kinkle, yeah. 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 And um, I was thinking, man, she was really amazing in that. Yeah. And you don't see it... I didn't think you saw enough of her these days. And I, I was like, great actress. She definitely is somebody that would bring in, you know, people at a convention. Um, she's in, you know, one of the best sci-fi movies ever made, arguably. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's like, I think we can get her. And we, and we, you know, we ended up getting her wow. and, uh, she was amazing. Like, it, you know, like the cast just started coming together after that. We got That's Maxwell incredible. Caulfield who was in empire records yeah. and, and Greece too. Wow. You know? And, uh, and then these new local actors, or uh, not local actors, these new actors, um, the main, the lead of the movie, who's like a Michael J. Fox type guy. Sure. Um, we got him from New York. Um, um, I know his last name is Weeson, but I forgot his first name. <laughs> it's It's been, been a lot of shit had been going on. Right. And then we also cast as his love interest, the daughter of John James. And that was not nepotism. It was like right. simply she had the best audition. Right. She was really great. She was actually... Um, I think a winner of like America's Next Top Model wow. or something back in the day or something. Whenever they were doing that, or they're still doing it. But, sure, sure. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was a great cast, and and we cast a few local actors and everything, and it taught me a lot. It was, it was crazy. Wow. Like, and that that film should be, that film should be done by the end of the summer, is my guess. I would love to get it into Chattanooga next sure. year. Sure. Um, but I don't know what Dave's plans are. Um, okay. He originally wanted to do it as a movie, and now he wants to do it as a pilot. And try to pitch it to sci-fi. Oh, interesting. So, okay. So we'll see. Yeah. Wow. Um, so maybe the most interesting <laughs> thing you've got going on right now is that you started a soda company. Yep. <laughs> How? How does that even happen? Oh, well, I, I kind of gave up on life because the film thing wasn't doing anything for me. I mean, I'm not making any money off of the film thing. So I'm like, yeah, what, what can I do to make money? People like soda. <laughs> I can sell soda. Now, now what happened was uh, my friend Justin Bennell, who 
Uh, I didn't mention this earlier. He was the, one of the ones that I made the first documentary with. Okay. Justin's the reason why I got into documentaries. Wow. It was like, let's make a mockumentary about Vermont people. Um, <laughs> and then he's like, let's so, make a yeah, he's, he's, he's like a really good friend of mine, and he has a he runs a media uh, company that okay. does advertising and stuff. And um, anyway, he, he just told me one day, he's like, yeah, I was in my grandfather's basement. I found all this history about my great-great-grandfather's soda company. And they were based in, in Burlington, Vermont. Sure. And they made ginger ale during Prohibition era, you know, America, which meaning, you know, the bottles look like champagne bottles, right. but it was soda wow. because it was illegal. Right. <laughs> and um, he's like, I found the ingredients and I found all these photos. And he's like, I think I want to bring it back. I think I want to like start the soda company. Sure. The, the company started in 1917. And then it folded in the 30s and kind of turned into the Coca-Cola plant up there. Okay. Um, and then his granddad was there during the Coca-Cola years. Um, so anyway, um, he started playing around with the ingredients and kind of updated them and, and made them all natural, um, you know, real um, fresh squeezed uh, um, ginger, wow. uh, fresh squeezed limes, um, natural cane sugar, natural pepper. You know, I don't, I don't want to give away all the ingredients, but sure. everything's natural and, and um, refreshing and a very unique tasting. It doesn't taste like a ginger ale I've ever had. It's sure. very limey and, and very kicky. Yeah. And I think it's a great uh, mixer for a Moscow mule. I've had many <laughs> Moscow mules with it. Sure. But um, as soon as he got the flavor right, like we did taste testings, and I'm big on soda, so right. you know, I was involved with that. Um, we were like, okay, we're ready to, you know, to do this. Let's do a Kickstarter. And so we, we did a Kickstarter. Wow. We, we made our goal at the very last minute. And, and like the day after we had, um, we were part of the Vermont, Made of Vermont Expo where tons of people that make shit in Vermont were showcasing their products or sure. ideas. And that was the first time anyone in Vermont got to taste it. And man, the, the response was just overwhelming. That's Everybody incredible. loved it. There's only wild. one woman who was like, this is too spicy. Something's wrong with the ingredients. And, and then she gave the cup to Justin's wife and she's like, you taste this. And she actually had to taste it in front of her. But um, I mean, you, you're going to have critics. I mean, right. not everybody sure. likes spicy ginger ale. Right. A lot of people want the Schweppes. They want the Canada dry or they want the reeds. Right. And this is different. This yeah. is completely a unique taste. So wow. It's That's called wild. Venetian ginger ale. Venetian ginger ale. And the, the reason they call it that is because the soda plant was across the street from a Venetian blinds company. <laughs> and the, his great-great-granddad was too fucking lazy to think of a different name. And the cool thing about the Venetian blinds company is that uh, they made the blinds for the Empire State Building back in the no day. No shit. Wow. That's pretty cool. That's but very, I just I cool. love that it's a family business. Right. Like, again, it was a fucking family. Family. And finding shit in the attic. Right. Like he found it in the basement. Um, I gotta get out of that business. Every single film is gonna be like, I want to make horror films like that. Now. Yeah, so I mean, and then that's the that's the, why, the, you know, the family. Final Texas Chainsaw Massacre is my favorite film, by the way, and that's, family, a, that's all and that's about all family. family. The Saw's uh, family. But you know, in in kind of finishing up, yeah. I mean, what do is, is narrative? You know, do you is, do you have a narrative project lined up where you're directing I, or writing? It's, it's been tough because here's the thing, I used to write. Okay. And then my mom died, sure. and I stopped writing, and I haven't really written anything since. Um, and I slowly came to terms with the fact that I'm not a writer. I'm, I have ideas. I could be like a story guy. I can come sure. up with a story and give it to a writer. But I'm, I'm, I need to find like a partner who gets me and gets my sensibilities because it's all about people that get your humor and get your yeah. dialogue and everything. Absolutely. Um, but I just made a decision. I just want to be a director. I want to, you know, if I can get a script from somebody or if I can collaborate with somebody, that'd be great. Um, I know like a lot of people keep saying, you know, you got to write your own stuff. People want auteurs these days. They don't right. want people that just direct anymore, which sucks. But so uh, I kind of had a writer's block over the years and, and only recently have I decided I'm going to start writing again and, sure. and getting back into it. I had one idea for a horror film and I pitched it to Travis Stevens and he actually had some great advice for me. And, really? Um, I might try to write that just to get it out. Sure. You should always write, you know. Um, always. Don't keep your ideas in your head. Right. Get it on paper. If it sucks, who cares? Right. As long as you write it, you're creating something. You've, you've exercised it out. It, yeah, least. exactly. Yeah. It's important to do that, I think. Right. And, um, so I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to start exercising those muscles. And, awesome. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what the future brings me. Um, I'm excited about Accelerator coming out. Sure. You know, it's cool that I produced a little fun, you know, fun little <laughs> sci-fi movie sure. with Sean Young. And, and um, I'm excited. Um, you know, we'll see what The Crest does. I, awesome. It's not going to do anything that A Bank of Death did. But, right. Um, I, hope it, I hope 
it, you know, especially now the crest is kind of important, I think to some people, cause it does deal with immigration a little bit. Absolutely. I think it's a, I think it's a really powerful story. And, mm. uh, thank you. I think, you know, I think the, all of the work that you've done, you, you are able to capture, you know, the, a lot of what the human condition really is. And, uh, yeah. And I'm excited for you, man. Yeah. I'm excited to see what the crest does. So. Thank you. Well, I'm passionate about that stuff. You awesome. know, if, if I wasn't, you know, I don't know. The movies just wouldn't, they wouldn't be what they are. Sure. I think they'd be half of what they are. And, sure. and I believe in them and, you know, awesome. we'll see. Hopefully they come out to see it at this festival. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, if you're in town, uh, come out out and see it. Otherwise, you know, it, it, it should be available before we'll see. too terribly long, maybe. It'd be great. Hey, if there are any distributors out there, right. I have nobody. <laughs> like, I'm at the point now where I'm thinking, do I just put it out for free? Sure. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that once people, you know, get their eyes on it, it's, yeah. it's going to do great things. Mark, thank you so much yeah, for chatting you. with me today. It's been great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, check out the rest of our coverage from the Chattanooga Film Festival, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. We're